Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. everybody to our monthly School of Christ group, the School of Christ, and we are continuing on in our reflections of John Henry Newman uh, from a little book called Everyday Meditations, and they're actually taken from his meditations and devotions. And one of the reasons I chose this book for this group, uh, following our discussion of Monica Guardini's, is that it gives us, uh, I think, a better conception of the person of John Henry Newman the saint. Uh, Most often people associate Newman with his uh, intellectual writings, his theological writings, which are brilliant. In fact, one might say safely that Newman's the most brilliant mind of the 19th century in regards to theological writings. Uh, But uh, I think to really get a sense of the man looking at his, uh, either his letters, his correspondence to others or his spiritual writings, I think really reveals something to us about Newman's heart. And certainly these meditations and devotions do. And tonight the meditation is entitled, Behold the Man. And in many ways, I think it's perfect for us as we prepare to enter into Holy Week, uh, that this would be our our meditation. Uh, If you remember, these words were spoken by Pontius Pilate. Uh, When Jesus was put on trial, he was viciously scourged. Uh, He was crowned with thorns, and then he was cloaked in a purple robe to mock him, and he's brought out before the crowds, and Pontius Pilate says to them, behold the man, or in Latin, ecce homo, and uh, and yet even seeing Christ in his state, and how severely he had already been scourged, uh, close to death already, uh, the crowds cry out, crucify him, crucify him, so there was a kind of bloodlust already in action there, that they were wanting his death above all. And, uh, and so this is, I think, the perfect way for us to begin Holy Week. Tomorrow is Palm Sunday, or often called Palm Passion Sunday. And so we reflect upon Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, but also then at the reading of the gospel, we read the entire Passion. And I think this year it's from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And uh, it's there that, again, we'll hear Pontius Pilate say these words, behold the man. And so in some ways, again, Newman's reflection will be a great preparation for us tomorrow. So I really don't have to give a homily tomorrow. I think we'll just count this as that. So uh, the red uh, print, italicized print, is just my preparation for Newman's reflection. 
Uh, but before we go in to this, I want to talk a little bit. I was working through about how uh, I might uh, frame Newman's discussion a little bit. And his focus immediately jumps to beholding the man, but in particular, gazing upon the face of Christ. And we see this uh, put forward uh, by, by the church really from the beginning, calling us to gaze upon the face of Christ, this holy visage of Christ. And it's because it's in and through the face that we really establish a relationship with another, that God has revealed himself in, in an incomparable way in and through the gift of his son. He takes upon himself our flesh and it's gazing upon the face of Christ that we come to gaze upon the face of God. If you remember, there's a kind of thread that runs through the Holy Scriptures. In the Old Testament, we hear again and again that man cannot look upon the face of God, otherwise he will die. But then there's a radical shift after the incarnation, and we find ourselves being called, in particular by St. Paul, to gaze upon the face of Christ as he has revealed himself to us, especially as he reveals himself to us as the man of sorrows, one who embraces the cross on our behalf. And so in Paul, we, we hear him say, develop this theology of the face, if you will. See God in the face of Christ, he tells us. Or he tells us, gaze steadily on Christ with unveiled faces. And so Paul is telling us something about what God has done, how he's revealed himself to us, that we need no longer fear gazing upon God. In fact, God has done the, just the opposite for us. He's made it possible for us to gaze upon him. And so in being able to gaze upon him, experience a kind of intimacy with him, with him to enter into a relationship that is unparalleled for us. And if we think about it as human beings, the, the relationship that we first enter into is with our mothers. And it is in particular that gaze that exists between mother and child, that identification begins to develop a sense of communion, intimacy with the other, uh, as well as oneness. And it's so, so it's so important in the development of the child and their understanding of themselves and the world around them, but also their perception of themselves as loved, being loved in and through the gaze of the mother. Not that the father doesn't play, play an important role here too, but the mother in a unique way becomes for the child this, this way to establish a relationship with the world outside of itself, and, but also to establish this relationship of love. And so in becoming one of us, taking our flesh upon himself, God seeks to create this relationship of intimacy that we might come to see ourselves as united to God, experiencing a oneness with him, communion with him, not in an abstract way, but ex experientially. And so Newman, as well as the spiritual tradition and the spiritual writers as a whole are seeing things in this way, connecting the incarnation and gazing upon the face of Christ. And in particular, Pontius Pilate's almost prophetic call, behold the man, becomes for the church throughout the centuries, a call that we are to heed, that it's by gazing upon Christ and gazing upon him unceasingly that we come to understand something of divine love. We see indications of this in the gospel 
where Christ is speaking about Moses in the desert. If you remember the story from the Old Testament when the Israelites had disobeyed God and they began to be stung by serpents and they were dying. And so Moses intercedes on their behalf and God tells Moses to pin one of the serpents up on a rod and a staff and have the people to gaze at the serpent. And in gazing upon the serpent, then they would be healed. So as they gaze upon the image of their own sin, as it were, their sin comes back to, to bite them and they die because of their sin. By gazing upon it, in some ways they are compelled to look upon, upon it and acknowledge the poverty of their sin. It brings upon them a kind of repentance, a turning to the, the acknowledgement of their sin in order that they might also then begin to receive the mercy of God, his healing. And Christ goes on to say, so will the son of man be lifted up uh, so that all that gaze upon him might come to know light. So our gazing upon Christ crucified, we come to see there the depth of God's love for us, what he's willing to do on our behalf in order that we might have life. We see on the cross the, the weight of our sin and how horrible it is. But at the same time, we are moved through compunction to turn to God and gazing upon the crucifix. We, we see there not only our, our sin, but the depth of God's love for us, his willingness to take that sin and its greatest consequence upon himself that is only prefigured in the Old Testament image of Moses and the serpent in the desert. That in the cross, we see Christ taking upon himself the ultimate burden of our sin in order that we might come to share eternal life, that we might know communion and union with God, that we might be elevated again beyond imagination. So again, it's, it's this that Newman is, is viewing uh, this, this uh, prophetic call, if you will, again, from Pontius Pilate, behold the man. And I was doing a little research in preparation for the group about this devotion to the holy face, since it goes all the way back uh, to the beginnings of, of the life of the church. And very early on, this devotion, as I mentioned already in Paul, we hear this call. But uh, many of you have heard of Veronica's veil, even though Veronica isn't mentioned in the scripture. There's a tradition that a veil exists, a cloth exists, that bears the image of Christ that she gave to him while he's on the, the way to Calvary that he wipes his face with and upon it is the image of our Lord. And uh, in the Western church, it's believed that this was found and it's called the Manapello uh, veil. And it's from the town in Italy where it was found that it had been stolen uh, from Rome and eventually shows back up. And uh, there's a scholar who says that this same veil that was used to wipe the face of Christ was then placed upon Christ in the tomb. And, and so it's the image upon it is both of Christ crucified, but risen as well. And that the image itself has these qualities about it. It's on a cloth that really cannot bear pigment. And so it's not painted on there. It's just very much like the Shroud of Turin in that regard. And, uh, and so there's been this incredible devotion to this image of, of Christ in this little church in this town. In fact, many Oratorians went there on pilgrimage 
there's one oratorian, I can't remember wh which it was, there's sort of a funny story about it. I think it was Juvenal Encina who had gone to venerate this image uh, of Christ. And uh, he had, well, while he was there, it was funny, it was at a Benedictine monastery and they were reading this book upon this image of Christ. And it comes to this story about this oratorian making this pilgrimage. And what happens to him is that he's struck by lightning and he, they intercede on his behalf uh, to Christ to, to heal him. And he, he remains alive. His underclothes are all singed because he was struck by lightning, but he's preserved from death by uh, seeking Christ's mercy in and through this image, this Montepella image. And it was sort of an embarrassing moment for me, you know, of all things, you know, all oratorian stories to talk about one oratorian who happens to be struck by lightning. It's not the most kind of romantic or spiritual image, but, uh, but there have been many who've made this pilgrimage over the generations to see this face, uh, including many popes, uh, Pope John Paul II, Benedict and Francis have all gone. And many Catholics don't know this, but St. John Paul II dedicated the millennium, the new millennium to the holy face of Christ. And so John Paul II is saying that this is such an important devotion for us, that it's not simply a good thing for us to embrace, but an essential thing for us to embrace as Christians in our battle and engaging in the battle between light and darkness. It's by keeping our gaze fixed upon the face of Christ, that we are strengthened, but that we are also healed. And we see similar things in the East as well, in particular through iconography, various icons that have this miraculous power too. And in the similar way, an icon of the face of Christ imprinted upon a cloth. And so very early on in the Eastern tradition, we see something similar emerge that there's a, it's called a, a, an image made without hands, uh, that the first icon was thought to be created by God himself. And so by gazing upon it, one is healed. And we see John Paul echo this, even in terms of Eucharistic adoration, that what is taking place in adoration is that we are gazing upon the Eucharistic face of Christ. And in looking upon the face of Christ, whether it's the Eucharistic face or this holy image or an icon, it's not like we are looking at anything else. We are looking upon the holy visage of Christ himself. And that this brings a kind of power and healing to us as men and women, men and women of faith. And so I, I just want you to have this uh, in your mind as some of the background. In fact, the name Veronica actually means true if the etymology of the word means true image. So even though she's not mentioned in the scripture, it's something that maybe the name Veronica simply means that, that true, this, that what this woman who comes up to Christ along the way of the Calvary receives is this true image of him uh, on this cloth that was used for, to comfort him. But I just, I wanna give you a couple quotes here uh, from those who visited Montepello, uh, Cardinal Robert Seurat, who many know of our own day, who wrote the book, The Power of Silence, said, here in Montepello, we meet the face of God face to face. And when we look at him, his gaze cleanses and heals us. God be blessed. 
And similarly, Pope Benedict XVI on his visit writes, show us, O Lord, we pray you, your face ever new, that mere mystery laden of God's infinite mercy. Grant that we may contemplate it with the eyes of our minds and of our hearts. The son's face, radiance of the father's glory and the imprint of his nature, the human face of God that has burst into history to reveal the horizons of eternity. The silent face of Jesus suffering and risen when loved and accepted changes our hearts and lives. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Psalm 27. So this was part of Benedict's reflection as he was leaving at the end of, of his pilgrimage. But the interesting thing comes to us from, uh, from John Paul II, when he establishes this devotion for the new millennium. He writes, may the Lord grant that in the new millennium, the church will grow ever more in holiness, that she may become in history a true epiphany of the merciful and glorious face of Christ the Lord. So in gazing upon this image, again, it's not a passive thing for us, a passive reality. And this is what Newman will bring out beautifully, that it's an act of participation of reflecting upon the passion of Christ, but also our gaze upon him is very active to the point that we are to allow that image to become imprinted upon us. And so deeply that those who gaze upon us see the face of Christ that in every way we are to be conformed to Christ, that they begin to see the brightness, the glory of Christ shine from our countenance. And this is what we often hear in the stories of the lives of the saints, that the glory of God begins to, to shine through, through them, manifest itself through them. He also writes, John, this is again, St. John Paul II, it is the church's task to reflect the light of Christ in every historical period to make his face shine before the generations of the new millennium. Our witness, however, would be hopelessly inadequate if we ourselves had not first contemplated his face. And so John Paul is saying that this can't be simply an intellectual thing or our looking at an image once in a while, that our gaze upon the face of Christ is to be so constant that it is to be emblazoned upon our hearts, that our meditation, our contemplation, again, of this image of Christ is not something that leaves us unaffected or unchanged, that every time we gaze upon it, there should be some transformation that takes place. And any of you who've uh, spent time in prayer before uh, an icon of the holy face of Christ or have spent time, as I mentioned, in Eucharistic adoration, gazing upon his Eucharistic face, the, the the more we, that we spend time doing this, the deeper that we go, we, the more we begin to experience the internal transformation. That there is a relationship that begins to develop that is very much like the relationship between mother and child. We are nourished by it. We begin to perceive reality as it truly is. We are formed and developed as men and women after the heart of Christ himself. So this is the, the broader framework that I'd like us to reflect upon Newman's meditation, because he takes us right there, uh, almost in anticipation 
of what John Paul II would do in establishing this special, special millennium <laughs> for the gazing upon the holy face of Christ. We're used to the idea of the year of divine mercy or the, the year of the Eucharist, where we all spend an entire year reflecting upon a central mystery of our faith. But John Paul, I think, saw what we were going to experience and he could see what was coming, I think, on some level and how we would need to be strengthened, that our gaze has to be constantly upon Christ if we're not going to fall into despondency, whether it's seeing the, the depth of sin and it, its reach into our hearts or seeing how sin has affected the world, that we would not become downcast, that we would be able to make our way through the darkness guided by this light. I want to share one last thing before we get into Newman's text. It's from a Carthusian and uh, written recently. And uh, Carthusians never signed their name, so I don't know who exactly wrote it, but he's writing about the very same thing. It was so beautiful, I just want to share it with you. It's just one paragraph. He writes, let therefore Christ suffer in you. Lend him your body and your heart in order that he can achieve in his mystical body what he began on Calvary. If not, you do not merit the choice that he made for your person. The beautiful face lacerated and sorrowful, the holy face turned toward you will reflect itself on you. Offer him recollected and calm, the virgin mirror of your soul. Upon earth, it is in you the image that is pleasing to God. So when God gazes upon us, when the father gazes upon us, what he should see is the visage of his only begotten son. And uh, we hear this in one of the prefaces, Eucharistic prefaces, that God will look upon you and see, in his, see, you, see his only begotten son in you. And so again, I think all of these spiritual writers and the Holy Father knows what we have to become in order to help bring about the transformation of a world that has grown dark in its sin. And nothing, it can be nothing less than our complete transformation and conformity to Christ himself. The world has to see Christ within us, the glory of Christ within us. Other, otherwise, what we will do, do will bear no fruit within the world. So our living out of the Christian life can't just be talking about Christ, nor can it be building various buildings or having one program after another. If that's all it is, it's not going to bear much fruit for the world. It has to be something that's written in flesh and blood. People have to encounter Christ within us. can tell you the number of people that I've talked to over the course of the years that have said that Christ seems very abstract to them, or that it's hard to imagine that he's other anyone other than someone who's waiting to smack us down in our poverty, to, to judge us and to judge us harshly, that the experience has never been one that is concrete for them. So it becomes very hard to believe and hold fast to a, a life of the gospel that they are struggling day in and day out to live. And so what do we say to certain individuals? You know, hold fast, don't become depressed, you know, just keep working on it. Or 
is it something that is far, far more compelling that is to engage the mind and the hearts of others that really has to be something that is made manifest in us. And why else would we receive the Holy Eucharist? Why else would Christ give us the gift of his own spirit if it is not to make manifest Christ to the world in the most powerful, concrete, tangible, intimate way possible? Because I, I don't think even when, when people receive the Eucharist, and even if they receive it every single day, can feel so broken in their life and because of what life has dealt them or feel broken by their own sin, that it becomes very hard to see God and to experience him even within the sacraments. And so I think the experience of Christ has to come in and through the gentle, calm, tender touch of those who are sons and daughters of God, that those who manifest Christ to the world. And having said this, we'll, we'll move on to Newman's reflection, but ultimately this is where, where he's guiding us. Any thoughts or comments so far? This would be the, the reflecting upon this devotion to the holy face and embracing it, I think would be a very good thing for people to explore and to embrace. Yes. Yeah, there are all these devotions surrounding it. And, uh, but for some reason, it has not been communicated very fully. And I'm not sure why, why that is so. When we see the devotion in, in the traditions of both East and, and West, if there's one place that we're unified, it's, it's, it's here. So the red print in your, your little booklet. Once again, Newman invites us to meditate upon the passion of our Lord, yet not from a distance, but as one ever so personally involved in it, not a bystander or observer, but an active participant. We are to gaze upon the face and allow the image of it to be engraved upon our minds and our hearts. For there we will be convicted of our sin and consoled by the love and kindness that emanate from his visage. Beyond this, Newman calls us likewise to see the hand raised against our Lord, offering one blow after another, and to ask ourselves, whose hand is it? As David heard from Nathan the prophet, so we shall hear our consciences cry out, you are the man. Do we think that we are above such things? We need only search back in our minds to see the many times we scoffed against sacred things, looked at others with hatred and resentment, filled our imagination with every impurity, rejected the voice of God beckoning us to prayer. Such a gaze seems to threaten us with despair, yet in reality it holds the only promise of redemption. We must allow our hearts to be moved to healing sorrow to allow him even now to call us back to himself. We must not prevent the gravity of our sin to be greater than his grace and mercy. We may seem stuck in the mire of our ingratitude, but our gaze be locked upon his face. And so the purifying fire of contrition to be lit within our hearts. So, uh, this sort of reiterates what I've been saying so far, but you get a sense of where Newman is going to be leading us. And again, I think this shows us also something very important about Newman's heart. 
what made him a saint, where his mind and heart was in his day-to-day -day reflection. So let's look at his writing itself. I see the figure of a man, whether young or old, I cannot tell. He may be 50 or he may be 30. Sometimes he looks one, sometimes the other. There's something inexpressible about his face that I cannot solve. Perhaps as he bears all burdens, he bears that of old age too. But so it is, his face is at once most venerable yet most childlike, most calm, most sweet, most modest, beaming with sanctity and with loving kindness. His eyes rivet me and move my heart. His breath is all fragrant and transports me out of myself. Oh, I will look upon that face forever and I will not cease. We could probably spend the, the rest of tonight reflecting upon this one paragraph. Uh, you see the, the eloquence of, of Newman here, even in this spiritual reflection. And I think it's interesting how he began things. He, he sees the figure of a man, whether young or old, I cannot tell, maybe 50, maybe 30. And it was sort of an interesting thought. And it made me begin to wonder what, why Newman was thinking about this. And it's precisely as he says, because Christ has borne the burdens of the world. I think we often think of Christ as just one other man who was crucified as a criminal. And a man who was only in his early 30s at that. One who had not experienced all the sufferings of life. And his death was so quick, three hours. Whereas those in old age or those who get sick or ill often will linger even for, for years in chronic illness. And so we can see Christ sort of uh, uh, abstracted from that. And Newman is saying here right at the beginning, through, through my gaze upon Christ, there, there's something that begins to take place. There's something that I, I cannot quite solve. That when I look upon him, he is both to me, an elderly person and a younger person. He holds within himself and his gaze his face holds within itself the burdens of the world. Having embraced them all, I see them all in the face of Christ. So already Newman is giving us here a, a little uh, clarity in regards to our path forward and what it offers us. In gazing upon Christ, we see one who in love has embraced everything on our behalf. And we, we see a face that speaks to us more deeply than any face in this world can speak to us, including the face of our own mother, which is an extraordinary thing to think of. That this gaze through the one that we have this first encounter with when we come into this world and this, this deepest of communion, uh, experiences of communion with our mother, that this experience of gazing upon the, the face of Christ draws us into a communion and intimacy, again, that is, nothing in this world can capture for us. It is a gaze that, that holds within it the experience, the sufferings of every human person of all time, every moment. There's not one thing that we experience in this world one bit of suffering that we undergo in isolation or that Christ is not born. 
And so when we look upon his face, we see one ever so familiar, but also one who's familiar with what we've gone, gone through. That's why one can sit in complete silence and adoration. Because when we gaze upon the face of Christ, we don't have to tell him what we're going through. We don't have to explain it to God, the one who's already borne it with us. He knows it. And when we gaze upon his face for a long enough period, we begin to experience that for ourselves, the depth of that love, the depth of his understanding. And Newman says there, there is something inexpressible about this, that we would never have the words as, as human beings to capture it. And really, it is something that is only comprehended in and through the gift of faith, that when we gaze upon his face uh, with faith, we are able to comprehend what goes beyond imagination, what goes beyond intellect and reason. God reveals himself and his divine love to us in and through this. This is why uh, in the East in particular, they don't see icons as art. In fact, most people, when they first see an icon, are sort of turned off by it and maybe even a little frightened by it. The gaze in the eyes, the, 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 the flatness of the image. Often it's not an appealing thing at first for people, but it's not, I think what we are to understand is that it's not a piece of artwork. That it's a window to the divine. It allows us to gaze upon God himself. And so gazing upon the icon of the face of Christ for those in the East would be very much, I think, in the way that we understand Eucharistic adoration. In fact, I had a Byzantine fellow ask me that once, you know, because he couldn't get the whole thing about Eucharistic adoration. He was hearing us talk about it here constantly at the oratory. He says, I just don't get it. We don't do this in the East with our, our mysteries are, are something that are kept cloaked in that mystery. We don't pull, pull it out and sit there before it and gaze upon it. And the only way that I could think to talk to him about it was in and through this idea of seeing it as something comparable to iconography for them. And the moment that I said that to him, he got it. He understood what Eucharistic adoration was all about. It was like sitting in an icon corner, gazing at the face of Christ and being drawn into the, the mystery and drawn into that relationship and through doing so and then through prayer. And so Newman again captures it in a beautiful way. He says, and listen to the images that he uses. Most childlike, calm, sweet, modest, beaming with sanctity and with loving kindness. The eyes rivet me and move my heart. His breath is all fragrant and transports me out of myself. And so he adds this little image at the end that Newman even uh, captures the, the, the smell of Christ's breath. So Newman is telling us this again, that th this is ever so personal. It's not abstract. It's not a matter of the imagination. The, gazing upon the image of Christ in faith places him in such radical contact, contact with Christ that it, the image becomes a sacramental for, for us in the most powerful way that we are drawn into the mystery upon which we are reflecting. And with the face of Christ so powerfully, he says that I, I began to smell 
his breath. And it's as though Christ himself is with me. And in reality, that is true. And it's interesting, Newman leaves us with this one paragraph to reflect upon in the sense of the beauty of it, that this is what God has given us. He's come to us, taken our flesh upon himself, but this is not a reality that ceased at the ascension, that this is a reality that continues to make itself manifest in the life of the church and in through the sacramental life and in and through the sacramentals of the church, the most powerful being the very face of Christ himself. And so, you know, if we're looking to the world and how we are to engage the world, and if we are looking to our own struggle as those living in the world or feeling disconnected from Christ, that Newman and Pope Benedict, Pope St. John Paul II, as well as St. Francis, all tell us the same thing. Keep your gaze fixed upon Christ. And, and again, in this, they're echoing St. Paul, who, who already knew that what God did in his son was something that had lasting and enduring value. That it's not something that has left us. Okay, any thoughts so far on what Newman is saying here? I know that was a lot to dump on you here in the first 20 minutes, but yes. I have a question uh, regarding the comment that you made. Um, you, you explained that uh, in terms of the, the reality of the Right. Well, I think th they believe in faith that, again, the icon is not simply a painted image, that it is a window to the divine, the window to the kingdom. I think where we would go a step further with the Eucharist is that, as you said, it is indeed the Lord as he's given himself to us. And so when we gaze upon his Eucharistic face, we are gazing upon that image uh, in a way that no icon can compare with. So I, I think in my own mind, I wouldn't equate the two. I was, um, I was thinking more of how I was trying to begin this conversation with the, an Eastern Rite person who knew nothing about Eucharistic adoration, but how could he frame it for himself in such a way when it seems so foreign? And we can see why the connection would be there. But I think in our own minds, we would acknowledge that gazing upon the Eucharistic face is incomparable. And I think this is why John Paul II put forward Eucharistic adoration, something that really should be present in the church in as wide a manner as possible, that we really need to be strengthened in this way in terms of our experience of Christ in order to be able to bear witness to him in the world. We can't speak of what we do not know. And so it's only by spending that time with Christ that we can truly bear witness to him. Yes. I had two thoughts. Um, one was uh, about icons. It's sort of interesting. Um, I, I believe the, well, the very fact that the first icon was miraculously produced, mm -hmm. um, the image of the Theotokos mm -hmm. miraculously right. appearing. Right. On, so I feel like from its very origin, mm -hmm. it's been given to the church as a peculiar form of um, artistically derived veneration. Right. Um, and uh, and in its history, icons, apart from any other religious art, have been peculiarly blessed 
has um, miraculous sources. Like there are icons all over the world that um, that weep. Um, there's an icon right now that began weeping at the outbreak of the war. Um, there are icons that use miraculous oil that smells like roses. Um, Our Lady of Chestahova, she wasn't painted with that wound on her face that was inflicted by a sword and then absorbed into the image itself. So I do think that the Holy Spirit has responded to the veneration of icons as windows to the divine by instilling them with the quality right. of that. Um, the other thought I had totally separate was this little um, detail of the breath of Christ is, is just something really lovely to be included because it's, I mean, like breath is funny, right? I mean, we don't talk about breath in a positive way very often. <laughs> Typically when we talk about someone's breath, it's like terrible breath. Um, and yet uh, breath, like it's so often in the New Testament, it's how Christ heals, he breathes on the sick people. Um, he bestows the Holy Spirit on the disciples by breathing upon them. And it's part of the rite of baptism is being breathed upon by the priest. Um, and so it's just like a lovely little detail to be right. in there. You don't normally get on reflections. Yeah. That's a very interesting reflection. Because Newman is saying here too, that there's something that transports him about that because this added sense and i think tying it to christ breathing upon the apostles that you know the gift of the holy spirit sort of gives us a sense of how newman might have been thinking about it he's transported out of himself he's elevated uh by this experience of christ in and through the image well we move on uh with where he takes us here in the coming paragraphs and I see suddenly someone come to him and raise his hand and sharply strike him on that heavenly face. It is a hard hand, the hand of a rude man, perhaps has iron upon it. It could not be so sudden as to take by surprise him who knows all things past and future. And he shows no sign of resentment, remaining calm and grave as before. But the expression of his face is marred a great welt arises, and in a short time, that all gracious face is hidden from me by the effects of this indignity, as if a cloud came over it. So you begin to see how deep, deeply Newman goes into his reflection here upon this, the face of Christ. Uh, he enters immediately into the passion of our Lord, where this image is marred. Christ, the most beautiful of human beings, uh, the God man is by man, then brutalized. The, this image of the face of God, the God who's come to reveal himself, to reveal himself as love, is then uh, struck by man in his sin, and yet responds to that being struck, not with violence. He does not return violence for violence but rather maintains that calm demeanor, not falling into re resentment, but remaining steady, grave in the face of, of what he was enduring. And, uh, you know, this is often very difficult for us to imagine, as is his teaching uh, that uh, the, uh, 
the cross really becomes an icon of revealing fully uh, that he manifests in reality for us the beatitudes but all of his teachings about loving one's enemy uh, going the extra mile turning the other cheek literally we see this being made manifest in christ and so something of our meditation especially during holy week should be along the lines of what we see here in, in newman and again as we will see not reflecting upon it in an abstract fashion as though that hand belongs to someone else because as we've talked in so many groups before there is a radical solidarity that exists between us certainly in, in the love that God has given us in his son and in our communion in and through the Holy Eucharist. But there's also a kind of solidarity between us in our sin. And we see, this is why the apostles are given the power of binding and loosing of sin, that they are to be deeply immersed in the sin of the world, not, if not in taking, if not in committing it, then helping to take it away and helping to reconcile men and women to God, to be deeply immersed in it. Uh, but this solidarity that exists bet between us in our, our poverty cannot allow us to read this as if somehow we are removed from it. That th these, these are mere events that took place simply 2000 years ago, so distant from us. There's something that is meta-historical about them, that we are a part of these events that took place and Christ's passion. And so when we hear the gospel proclaimed tomorrow, again, uh, we have to be struggling to enter into it, again, not, not as those who are passive observers or thinking that we're passive of observers, uh, but rather seeing ourselves as active participants in each of the characters that we hear about in the gospel. It would be better, I think, in some sense. You know, often it's the priest or a priest and a couple of people reading. On some level, I think this would be one occasion where everybody in the church should be involved in the roles that are played in the reading of the Passion, because it's too easy for us to see ourselves as outside of it. To hear oneself crying out, crucify him, crucify him, bring something home in a very concrete way, rather than just hearing it as if somebody else is reporting it to us as something that took place 2000 years ago. He goes on to say, a hand was lifted up against the face of Christ. Whose hand was that? My conscience tells me you are the man. I trust it is not so with me now, but oh, my soul contemplate the awful fact. Fancy Christ before you and fancy yourself lifting up your hand and striking him. You will say, it is impossible. I could not do so. Yes, you have done so. When you sinned willfully, then you have done so. He is beyond pain now. Still you have struck him. And had it been in the days of his flesh, he would have felt pain. Turn back in memory and recollect the time, the day, the hour, when by a willful mortal sin, by scoffing at sacred things, or by profaneness, or by a dark hatred of your brother, or by acts of impurity, or by deliberate rejection of God's voice, or in any other devilish way known to you, you have struck the all-holy one. 
So again, you know, even I think if we see within our, our lives that we have undergone conversion or that there is a deep love for Christ that has been cultivated over the course of the years, Newman tells us that we still cannot see ourselves as far removed from that. That even though now we said it cannot be so impossible, we know if we are honest, if we are humble, looking back on our life, we know that it's very possible and that it's been done beyond counting because we are, are not aware of all the many ways. Newman lays out a few for us here, but in reality, there are many ways that we turn our back upon Christ or in a more deliberate way, strike him. And perhaps we strike him in others. Sometimes it's in, simply in and through our words. You know, it's where he says here, uh, the dark hatred of your brother. You know, there are many perhaps in this life that we've had a dark hatred for and have given ourselves over to. Oh, injured Lord, what can I say? I'm very guilty concerning you my brother, and I sh shall sink in solemn despair if you do not raise me. I cannot look on you. I shrink from you. I throw my arms round my face. I crouch to the earth. Satan will pull me down if you take not pity. It is terrible to turn to you, but oh, turn me and you take, I'm sorry, and turn me and so shall I be turned. It is purgatory to endure the sight of you, the sight of myself. I must vow you most holy, yet make me look once more on you, whom I have so incomprehensibly affronted. For your countenance is my only life, my only hope, and health lies in looking on you, whom I have pierced. So I put myself before you. I look on you again. I endure the pain in order to receive the purification. Now, you know, often I think people will look at Catholic spirituality and piety as being somewhat morbid, as seeing ourselves so deeply involved in the crucifixion of the Lord. But I think what Newman captures in this, uh, while he sees so clearly the poverty of our sin and our participation in the striking of the Lord, he also sees uh, that uh, in our difficulty and bearing the thought of it, that Christ himself by his grace allows us to turn and look at it honestly and to see it, but to see it without falling into despair. And in looking at it honestly, then being open to the grace and the mercy of God, the Newman tells us and tells his own soul, there's something that is deeply healing in this. I put myself before you, I look, on you again. I endure the pain in order to receive the purification. That Newman knows that this is the only healing for us as men and women of faith. It's not an ignoring the truth or thinking that somehow that we've risen above this. That I've mentioned in the past, Philip Neary, you know, saying often even after receiving Holy Communion, saying, Lord, protect me for this day, for otherwise I will betray you or there but the grace of God he was often heard to say that he knew outside of the grace of God that he was capable of doing the worst things of imitating Judas or imitating again doing exactly what 
the soldiers did, which was strike Christ across the face. So the, the saints said these things, not out of a kind of syrupy piety, uh, something that they really did not believe or see to be true about themselves. In humility, they could see the full truth about themselves as human beings. And it's seeing that full truth then that they also are able to see the full truth and the depth and the reach of God's mercy and of his healing grace. This is the important thing. You know, I think uh, I remember being at uh, the, the viewing of the Passion when it first came out and the, the theater was packed and it was very hard to watch because I, I think Gibson and his portrayal really captures what Newman is saying here, you know, in this image of Christ being struck across the face. And some people felt maybe it was too much, uh, but he captures it very well. And at the end, there's the scene of the, the resurrection, the stone rolls back and you get this final image of Christ with the marks in his hand. And when the movie was over, uh, someone wrote, stood up and yelled out that that's what it's about, you know, which is true, you know, that the Paschal mystery is the passion, death and resurrection of Christ. It's in the mystery as a whole that we find our hope. But it's not by placing part of it out of mind. It's sort of like Magdalene at the tomb, wanting to take hold of Christ. And he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father and your father, my God and your God. And it's the embrace of love that she wants. But Christ is telling her that she cannot treat the events of the past day Days as if they were just this terrible nightmare. And now that she has him back, she's never going to let him go again. And so I'm going to embrace him and, and cling to him. And he tells her no, that the, in the tragedy was the triumph. In, in the cross was the victory. So do not seek to place this in a distant past. It's all one part of this mystery of God's outpouring love for you that has made you now a part of the very life of God. I'm, I have to ascend to my God and your God, my father and your father, that something greater has emerged and through the events that have taken place. In a similar way, I think Newman is not willing to let us off as it were in our reflection upon this reality in distancing ourselves from it, because there is that part of us that would want to cling to Christ and not to acknowledge the poverty of our sin and to be humbled by that. But Newman tells us very clearly, it's by, by allowing Christ himself by his grace to pick us up and physically turn us if necessary, because there's part of us that so abhors the idea of looking at it honestly, please pick me up and turn me and allow me to see it because in seeing it, I'm also, also healed. This is why we enter into the liturgies in the way that we, we do this, this week. You know, we, we, go, we go through it in such a, a concrete way, the waving of the palm branches, and we move from triumph to tragedy in like 15 minutes of time in the Palm Sunday liturgy, uh, in order to connect the two uh, very closely in our minds. 
we go through it all, you know, with the foot washing too, uh, you know, that on their way to the cross, that little bubble, like in a cartoon where Christ is telling them, I must go to Jerusalem where I will be handed over and be put to death is still in the air. And he's been saying it to them over and over again. And if you look at the gospel right before the event of the foot washing was the group of them fighting over who of them would be the greatest, who would sit at his right and his left. And so they walk into the room where the last supper takes place and a slave would typically wash the dust of the road off of your feet when you would come into a guest house, but they would obviously didn't have slaves and they would do it for each other, but not on that night. They all march in to the place where they're going to celebrate the last supper, you know, with their arms crossed, hot faced, angry, because two sought places of primacy. In fact, from one gospel we hear it was their mother who asked on their behalf, but then they all march in, we are told indignant that the others sought the, the, these uh, privileged positions in the kingdom. And it's then Christ washes their feet. But again, when we, when we hear that, we, all of what Newman is saying here should be within our mind saying, you cannot, again, look at this as past history. In fact, this is why, again, we do it so concretely. We have people come up and have their feet washed in, in the liturgy. So again, that it, we wouldn't think about it again, or just read, hear about it and reading about it, but it would be presented right before our eyes that we would see it for ourselves, that it is Christ who humbles himself before us and washes our feet, even in the face of our sin and our private reach for, for power for ourselves that we would see ourselves as one of the apostles and capable of doing that. And we do it all the time. We seek positions of emotional power in, in relationships all the time. And we don't think about it or make the connection to what is taking place in the gospel and see how that it is contrary to love, but we can be very calculating in, in our love just as the apostles were. You know, think of Peter. He was probably hot under the, the collar because he was one of, the, one of the first called, you know, and he was the one to proclaim Christ and his true identity. You know, he's first among the apostles. And here, James and John are asking to sit at, his, at Christ's right hand and left. Peter must have been stinking mad about that. And I think this often happens too. You know, in our day-to-day -day interactions where we will feel slighted or we will feel mistreated or maybe act in, a, in reality be mistreated by another. And our response, our reaction is often to become hot, to become angry. And I think part of it is that we have not internalized something of, of the gospel as of yet. Any thoughts from anybody on Zoom or here in the room? Anthony. A little bit louder just so people on Zoom can hear. Um, I have a thought just in general about the Expo text because I kind of see where it's going and you know, just it's a general comment. I'm not sure how to phrase it. But uh, I feel that some of these limitations are created due to they don't address some of the problems that 
that we just have here in society now. Like, you know, society now are supposed to be saying, don't let me live. We have a 50% divorce. Families are breaking apart. Mm -hmm. They're in the day of a mother raising the son. Many people don't get that anymore. They don't see that. Right. And, you know, children are broken. They think that they're bad. They think that, you know, they and then we give them this meditation, and then they feel even worse. So uh, I think that you know it's important to recognize that you know this this type of things you know are are in the sense but prevents many people from coming into the church because you know they're already broken, they're already too bad about themselves, they keep this and that's right. I'm I'm right with you. And I think that's not Sorry, I'm getting some like feedback here. Okay, um, that's not Newman's fault. Uh, in fact, as we go, we have to understand that we, in some sense, have to su suspend judgment because we're looking at one part of this mystery of God's revelation of Himself and His Son. Newman's going to take us through a whole host. This is only our second or third meditation, so we're looking at one image that Newman wants us to see. But you're right. I mean, uh, but it's not Newman's responsibility. It's our responsibility to do, I think, what I'd mentioned the various popes telling us to do, what the tradition tells us to do, what Paul tells us to do, and Newman here, that we are to internalize this so deeply in order that we can see how it is then that we are to engage our world with its particular darkness. And I think this is what John Paul is holding out out to us, why he's holding out to us this devotion, precisely because he could see these realities already having emerged in the world, what people's experiences are, that each generation has to respond to its own need and its own suffering. And so all the things that you say are absolutely true, but how, how is it that we engage those realities outside of our relationship with Christ? one that is so deep that it is exactly how Newman describes it. And then as it's been described in the other readings that I shared with you, that our gazing upon Christ and our entrance into that relationship has become so deep that it's become ingrained upon our very souls. So that then when we engage others in our day-to-day -day life, when we engage friends, spouses, parents, strangers, that what they are seeing and what they are encountering is the loving hand of Christ. I would not take this and hand it to someone who did not know Christ, had no familiarity with him. You know, I think the experience uh, that has to take place has to be ever so personal in and through us. It can't be in an abstract way. You know, we're not handing out pamphlets to people on the street corners. You know, it has to be through this encounter with Christ. Again, not in an abstract way, but in and through, in and through us. And so I, I think what you say is ever so important. And I think this is why our current Pope, you know, Francis is saying, you know, there, there's a real problem here in evangelization because we are not engaging people in such a way where Christ becomes real and concrete and tangible for them, or becomes one who is a source of healing and hope for them. 
You know, insofar as we cling to certain externals of, of our faith and practice and ignore that reality, we are failing to do what the, uh, the, what Paul tells us, what Christ himself tells us, and what the whole spiritual tradition tells us about how we experience Christ in our life. So you're absolutely right in what you say. It's just that we can't expect Newman, who lived in the 19th century, who's writing a reflection for believers to meditate upon the passion in order that they might internalize it to do that work for us. That's our, our responsibility. We receive what God has given to us in order that we might live our lives in a certain way and, and make Christ present to others. So I see what you're saying, you know, and so this group is a meditation and it's that, that's all it is. It's everybody's responsibility here to internalize it, to allow it to transform their lives and affect the way that they engage others in the world. And so, you know, we can't, that's what I'm saying, you know, another book, another program is not going to transform the church. And even this group here, you know, it has limited value if we walk out of here and we say, wow, we read something really beautiful tonight, Newman's Meditation on the Passion. If all, if that's the effect that it has, the impact that it has, it's, it's not going to mean anything. It has to touch us so deeply that it changes the way that we view our life, the world, our experience of God, and our experience of each other. Okay. No, no, you were first. Go ahead. And just a loud enough so that people on Zoom can pick it up. Mm -hmm. Because I never knew why he said that to her. <laughs> yeah, it and seems now, so harsh. Well, I, yeah. I just never got it. And now you've given me yeah. something that I can understand. Good. I just really, really felt Yeah. In all fairness, that was Fulton Sheen, who, who I stole from. So yeah, I confess yeah, that yeah. before all of you. He also chanted this do not touch me, which yeah. just totally is not yeah. that yeah. Yeah. at yeah. all. Yeah. And you're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> And it's hard. It's hard when you read it, too, because often we think of Thomas then saying, I will not believe until I place my hands in the open wound. And we think, well, holy cow, Thomas is sticking his hand in his, Jesus' side. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying to Mary, do not cling to me. But I think there was something Mary was coming to him in love. And, you know, filled with this joy at having him back that her world had fallen apart. You know, he had given her life forgiveness and then all of a sudden it shattered. And so one understands her response, but he wants her to have what is greater. Whereas Thomas is actually coming from, you know, a much different place, you know, a place of skepticism, I would say, you know, that where he, you know, he's not going to believe. And I think he's much like us. He doesn't want to believe in the illusion so until I can see it with my own eyes and touch it with my own hands, I'm not going to believe. And uh, Christ responds to it, he gets it. And I think 
it's why he's given us the things that he has, the sacraments, in order that our experience of that healing touch and the reception of that love would not be abstract but concrete. But he still tells Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, who see with the eyes of faith and are so drawn into something far greater. A little louder, okay. All the consequences, All of, the social consequences of social injustice are also because we are not looking at Christ uh, with the eyes that Newman is describing here. Because maybe if we were, then we wouldn't allow evil to enter into our lives and all the social injustices would not happen. But at the same time, to fix the problem, you cannot simply go there and fix the social problem if you are not fixing the way that people are looking at God and on our own society. Right. Yeah, I think that's our, the question is, was about social injustices and dealing with them. And I think that's our, our tendency is to be fixers, you know, to see problems within the world and that we'll do something in order to correct it. And it's not as though we shouldn't be doing certain things, but oftentimes in doing that, we lose sight of the person. I think we can see certain ages of the church, of the church where there was this hands-on response to the needs of others, the response to the poor, the sick. Think of Camilla Stellalis taking care of those who are dying in the hospitals of Rome, or Mother Teresa closer to her own time, picking you know those who are dying up off the street uh, in this very concrete and tangible way. But I think we've we've handed over so much of that to uh, government structures, social structures to do that for us. And it depersonalizes. And we lo lose sight of the person in such a radical way that even what is being given diminishes the person rather than raises them up. And that's why it has no effect. When it's a person engaging another person, not in a condescending way, or not in a radically disconnected way through a government service, but in this most radical loving way, is then the, the person is elevated as well. Both individuals are elevated. You know, the one who's helping, the one in need, and the, the, the one is, who receives the help. And so it's, uh, you're right, you know, Newman pulls this right out of that, you know, of moving away from, you know, treating not only God in this abstract way, but other human, other human beings. I think, a lot, to be honest with you, a lot of people are really pretty comfortable with the lockdown with COVID because we could stay in our own houses. And speaking as an introvert, I was pretty darn comfortable with, you know, <laughs> certain parts of that. And many even were comf more comfortable with the mask on because it takes a certain pressure off of having to engage. You know, when nobody can see your face, you can just sort of walk around and you don't, you're not, you don't have to deal with day-to-day -day reality or the other person. And I think it's been sort of jarring for a lot of people. There's been resistance about going back to the workplace. And there's sort of an uncomfortable thing when you all of a sudden have to start engaging other human beings again. It's much easier to sit behind a, com a computer because you can create this sort of image and it places this distance. You could be in your pajamas, you know, during a meeting and, you know, nobody 
nobody would know. So you're only partially there where everything about the gospel says you have to be there completely. Your whole being, your heart, soul, everything has to be involved in your relationship with God, but with the other person because God himself is not absent from that person. So why don't we move, move on since, oh my God, how can I look you in the face when I think of my ingratitude? So deeply seated, so habitual, so immovable, or rather so awfully increasing. You load me day by day with your favors and feed me with yourself as you did Judas. Yet not only do I not profit thereby, but I do not even make any acknowledgement at the time. Lord, how long? When shall I be free from this real, this fatal captivity? He who made Judas his prey has got foothold of me in my old age, and I cannot get loose. It is the same day after day. When will you give me a still greater grace than you have given the grace to profit by the grace, graces that you give. When will you give me your effectual grace, which alone can give life and vigor to this effete, miserable, dying soul of mine? My God, I know not in what sense I can pain you in your glorified state, but I know that every fresh sin, every fresh ingratitude I now commit was among the blows and stripes that once fell on you in your passion. Let me have as little share in those of your past sufferings as possible. Day by day goes, and I find I have been more and more by the new things of each day. I know that at best I have a real share in all. Still, it shocks me to find myself having a greater. But others wound you. Newman sees you know, the capacity for ingratitude that we often have. And it's ingratitude is one of the things that we don't often speak about, or the opposite, the virtue, gratitude, that are thanksgiving for what God has given to us. And the more gratitude there is, the more that God places upon us in abundance. And yet Newman says, you know, that the same evil one who afflicted Judas is nipping at my heels constantly and relentlessly hounding me uh, to pull me back to myself or to participate in all the things that gave you pain. And so if even if you do not feel any part of that, what I currently now, you know, what, I, what is the reality is that I feel it within myself and the emptiness and the pain that it brings, that there's a kind of misery a soul that it brings. St. John Paul II said, sin is its own punishment. And I think in some way, this is what Newman is talking about here, that with the clarity that he had gained through his reflection upon this, that he could see the darkness that sin 
brings into our lives and how it can continue to, to grow and build upon it. And so Newman in response is praying, give me the grace that allows the graces you've already bestowed upon me to bear the fruit that you will. What, what an extraordinary prayer, because it's acknowledging in humility that God gives us so much. He gives us his very self and as our food and drink in the Eucharist. And so often that grace does not bear fruit because we scorn it or we set it aside or we're ungrateful or we do not even see it at all. And so Newman out of his depths has to cry, you know, pull me out of this misery. Give me the grace that allows all that you've given to bear the fruit that you desire. Because I can't see it even for myself, the beauty of what you've given, but what, what you've called me to become. And so provide me with what is needed in order that I might see and embrace it all. So it's an incredibly powerful reflection. And so we're getting back to what you were talking about, Anthony. You know, this is one little snapshot portrait of the, of the passion. And certainly Newman is going to take us through, you know, all of, of, of Christ's life and the implications for us. Uh, but the, uh, again, you know, that this is, I think this is what Newman is speaking of is what so often those in the world experience and why they reject Christianity because they do not see the fruit. I mean, didn't Gandhi say this at one point that one of the reasons that he did not convert was because of Christians themselves, that what they were proclaimed that he did not see the fruit of that in, in their life and in the world. And, uh, you know, and I think that's true. I mean, Fulton Sheen said something along similar lines that what people are rejecting is not Christianity, but often the image of Christianity that's being put before them on a day-to-day -day basis that is distorted and broken. And so what needs to take place has to take place in and through us first, through our own conversion and embrace of that grace for there to be gratitude within us before we can possibly engage another. So it sort of makes it clear how foolhardy it is. You know, the aggressive stance that we take to so many within the world and even to so many within the church, our own brothers and sisters in the church and people that we know nothing about, know nothing about their experience in this life, in this world. And yet we are willing, you know, to get up on our soapbox and, you know, condescend and preach to them about how they are to be living their life when in reality, they aren't seeing it within us. And so what happens is that we add to the noise of the world. And our noise isn't even as pleasant as the noise of the world or engaging or as entertaining. It simply seems like hypocrisy. At least what the world is giving them is partly what they would want or offer some satisfaction. Whereas preaching the gospel to someone without really living it seems like the greatest of hypocrisy, but also a kind of mad madness. What is it that you're preaching here? You know, are people meant to only suffer, only to bear, you know, bear these crosses and for, for what? Because they don't experience any real, real fruit of, of that. They don't experience that love in any real tangible way. Andrea, did you have a question? Okay.
Well, I think he's, there's a little bit of hyperbole he's probably speaking there, but I think he, he realizes again in the same way that Newm, uh, that Philip Neary, you know, the founder of Newman's own community saw that, you know, protect me Lord this day because otherwise I will betray you. That there, even for one who is saintly in our eyes, there can be an incomplete embrace of the grace that is given. And I think the, the more clearly the saint sees, they probably see that they embrace very little of what is given. Remember the little story about from the Desert Fathers about the, the young monk who was asking, how do I live my life? And he's told, keep the role, do all these things. And he's doing all that. And the monk holds his hands up and they become lanterns of fire. His fingers become lanterns of fire. Why not become all fire? You know, so, you know, if we were probably, and if we were embracing that grace in all of its fullness, you know, we would be on a flame with desire for God. I think we would probably be unrecognizable to those around us. You know, our countenance would change. And I think that that's true in the lives of many saints. And we probably would be unbearable to live with in one way or another, just because I think the view of the saints of the world of themselves, how they are to be living is so contrary to how we often live our life and the things that we immerse ourselves in that we would probably find them to be pest, <laughs> you know, just, just by how they are, are, are living, you know, they don't even have to be saying anything in, in particular. So your point's a good one then, you know, what, what is Newman saying here? And I think he's saying that, you know, our embrace of the grace of God, even when we are striving to do so, is often partial and perhaps much less than we imagine. And so, you know, when we are preparing ourselves for mass and when we are preparing to receive communion, we should be praying that God would give us the grace almost what Newman is saying here, give us the grace in order that the grace that you give will bear the fruit that you desire, that we would truly become what we receive at this holy altar, that we would become Christ for the world. Did you have a follow-up? And then I saw a couple other hands. Um, yeah, if you don't mind saying that, because you mentioned this so many times, and I can hear you say that,
I was just supposed to wait for these five or six individuals to be raised up, and the rest of us are just gonna let everything fall by the wayside. Okay, the question is, should we all just drop everything and let the few handful of people take over who are living it? And Christ started with 12, and it led, you know, to the conversion of thousands. And Philip Neary said, if I had 10 truly detached men, I could convert the world. So, you know, God can do extraordinary things through a handful of people, but that, that's beside the point. I, I get what you're saying here is that, no, the answer isn't for us to sit on our hands and let somebody else do it. I think the, the, the answer is, where, where do we start from? You know, how do you go out and evangelize when you don't know Christ? You know, what, why are we having all these programs on evangelization when we are so disconnected from the spiritual tradition and so often disconnected from the scriptures that we wouldn't really know what to say. We would be parroting something that we learned in a program and were taught to say. Whereas, you know, I think we should stop in the sense that we immerse ourselves in silence and we listen to Christ, that we allow ourselves to be evangelized by Christ himself in and through our prayer and that we live in a constant state of repentance. You know, this is why I had that group, you know, uh, maybe it was a couple months ago, it was before Lent, on repentance. That it's not to be an episodic reality for us. We are to be in this constant motion of turning toward God and away from our sin. So turning away from our sin to embrace the grace that God gives us, seeking to allow ourselves to be transformed in order that we might bear witness to him. And so it's not an either or. I think we are engaged in that process of turning towards him and bearing witness to him. But I think we have to do it in a humble fashion. You know, again, to think that, that we could engage the world about the gospel without a bloody warfare against sin, or that we can engage people about Christ without knowing him is an illusion. And so, you know, there's a Latin phrase, nemo dot, nemo dot non quod habit. You can't give what you don't have. And I think we would do better to communicate that first of all, you know, as we are thinking about evangelization, who, who are we evangelizing? And the answer to that question should be ourselves first. And how, do, how does one go about that? And we have to look to the spiritual tradition, to the elders. We don't walk a path in isolation, you know, that somehow we read a book and then we've got it and we can live the spiritual life or we can preach the gospel. You know, if anything, the tradition tells us that we have to be guided by others. Otherwise, we're just going, you know, we're going to fall into a pit. We have to hear the gospel ourselves in order to be converted before we preach it to others. And so evangelization always has to be with our hearing and receiving the gospel and being converted by it. I just think, you know, I don't want to be harsh about this and I don't want to be flippant about it, but I often feel that our starting point is at the wrong place or we're just not thinking about it or we're not asking the right questions. We may see a need there, 
And I think the need is so obvious. We see everything that's going on in the church, the diminishment of Christianity throughout out the world and people leaving the, the faith in flocks. And so we see the problem, but we, we aren't asking often the, the right questions. And we aren't asking ourselves, most importantly, the right question. And I, you know, I often have brought up, we're getting a little past time here now, but I've gotten, I often brought up Cardinal Seurat's book, The Power of Silence. And I felt in some ways, okay, that's prophetic. That's the one good thing that somebody said in modern times. Where do you begin? You begin by being quiet and listening to what God is saying to you. And then through what you see going on in your own life and the world and within the church and to humbly acknowledge that. You have to, you have to listen. Well, I think we're called to it. You know, I think, uh, and we're called to it again, not in isolation by the church itself, you know, that we're part of the body of Christ. And I think there is a kind of radical uh, individualism that has permeated the, the West, but it's also permeated uh, the church and the way that we as Christians view our, our place within the church. And so we, we see ourselves as not connected to that body. And so it's, I think the church has to address this itself. You know, it's, it's, you know, how do we again meet the needs of the age? How is it that we form men and women in the faith in order to prepare them for, for this? How is it even that we call people in our generation to do this very, very work? How does the church do this? And I think this is part of what, you know, people often are upset by what they think Francis is doing and some of the chaos that it seems to be creating, but maybe that chaos is somewhat necessary that maybe the way that some of the structures that have existed in the church have become so distorted by the desire for power or distortion by sin and corruption that has come in, that it really is compelling him to, to look at the, the, the church as a whole and its very structure, how it functions on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Because right now, I think what he's saying is that it's not bearing fruit in fact just the opposite and our tendency is to want to go back and cling to things as they were you see people sort of clawing to do that and getting very uncomfortable even by thinking about it because then all of a sudden you have to let go of security a sense of stability of how things are have been and are structured in your life we do this with our own personal life I think our own evangelization is going to be far more radical than what Pope Francis is doing within life of the church. God will often tear away the things that make us feel secure and stable in order to open us up to the life that he's called us to. Just as he did with the apostles, come follow me. And they, you know, they drop their boats, their nets, and they follow after him, not knowing what that was going to mean for them and their life. And so even as a whole, as the church, we can't head into the future except following the voice of the shepherd and allowing him to guide us where we, we need to go in order to engage the realities 
of the world around us. And yet that's terrifying for most, most people and for most people who are religious, you know, because we, we can make religion, you know, once we get secure and comfortable with it, then we don't have to ask too much more of ourselves. You know, we can feel, feel very comfortable with things as they are. And we become crit critics of the world around us. Oh, this is so terrible. The world's going down the toilet, you know, and, and that's an easy thing to do because it allows you to do nothing about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> you're not gonna go there. <laughs> Sharon put, she did that little finger raise and that <laughs> think before you say anything. <laughs> I, 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 I think I saw. I just so appreciate his humility when he says, I'm most vile, the most holy. And this is a great scene, you know, and there are so many, most saints are so very well aware of their own littleness, their own weakness. I think I just listened, I just took a trip to my dad's and I listened to my soul my soul on today. So moved by St. Faustina's witness, and it's very similar to what he's saying. Yeah, it's a good you know, point. Just the smaller we are, the, yeah. the more we are aware of our own weakness, our own littleness. No. Our own... Newman was the most tender and sensitive of individuals, this is such a sensitive soul you know, attentive to the sorrows of those around him. And so it is surprising to hear these words come from his mouth. And he suffered for the church, suffered for the truth in all these different ways. That's, that's right. And so it's not as though he was out at the margins, you know, in that regard. He was really in, immersed in his faith deeply, but I think he's still in that new, our capacity for delusion and the danger of falling into it. How quickly one can fall into this view of himself, you know, prideful, you know, overshore oneself and not be clinging to Christ. Anthony, did you have one more? Yes, I guess uh, And we'll wrap it up. You got the last words. So I, I just had a thought about the question about going out of the I think, in a Right. That's a good point. Right. Right. I think the key word, and yeah, and I, I don't want to be, I don't want to fall into generalization there. I probably did, but it has to be our response to Christ. You know, that there is this personal conversion that we, we undergo. And you're right, you know, that there, if we wait till we're ready, we're never going to move. And certainly Matthew as a tax collector, 
probably wasn't ready to do anything. He probably felt that he was unworthy to receive that, that call. But nonetheless, they all traveled with him for three years and they still didn't get it and abandoned him and had to experience the cross and receive the gift of the spirit, you know, and undergo this deeper conversion, the acknowledgement even of their, the, their betrayal. And Paul too, he goes off was it for like three years, you know, before doing doing anything. And so there was this kind of formation that that took place through the life of prayer and through immersion and scriptures. And so you're right, you know, I think it is it's to receive that call, and it often comes in surprising ways and unexpected ways, and it can begin it can begin even in a very small group of people in a subtle way and you know and that's i think what took place in philip neary's day you know he came as a young man to rome spent all night in prayer in the catacombs just talked to people in rome about the faith and eventually that crowd grew and they were having daily groups and on on you know on the faith talking about it making pilgrimages to the seven main churches within rome which is going to take place here on Holy Thursday. And, uh, and so, and it was eventually called by his spiritual director, listen, you have to become a priest because you have to be able to serve the people, you know, and to give them the sacraments and to hear their, their confessions. So it was in and through, you know, the spirit acting through his spiritual director that then leads him to take that leadership role in evangelization in a deeper fashion. Now, what that means in our own day and age, I think each generation has uh, a need for a kind of holy genius that arises in the life of certain men and women you know, in terms of what God is calling them to and how they respond to the realities of the world around them. And I can't say I don't know the mind of God on that, you know, because I think it's often hard to see it in our own day. What is God going to do with this mess? And what response is he looking for from us? Much more heroic faith, I think. Only close there. We were on a little late. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace. Thanks be to God. Have a wonderful Holy Week.